Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Jude this morning, Sunday morning studying in a series through the book of Jude. While we're turning there, just a reminder on Sunday night, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently in the Gospel according to, Jude, uh, according to Luke this evening. And uh, each of you are invited, 6 o'clock this evening. Three verses this morning, Jude, verse 5. But I want to remind you, though once you knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain or their first estate, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, I add my voice and prayer on behalf of all of us, and we thank you so much for your goodness in our life. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we pray that as we turn to your word now that you would use it to dismantle, to wipe out anything that is a part of our thinking, a part of our uh, relationship with you, a part of our Christianity that is exalting itself against the knowledge of you. And we pray, Lord, for this work of your Holy Spirit <clears throat> through your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jude, of course, as we remember, had intended to write a letter very different from the one that he ended up writing. He wanted to write a letter that was a celebration of our common uh, salvation. And you can imagine how what that letter might have been like. Uh, so much to say about our salvation and our Savior and God's goodness and His grace, but something was happening in the churches that were so alarming to him <clears throat> that that got pushed off of the front and center by the Holy Spirit, and he ended up having to write a letter uh, warning them as he's become aware of a, a situation that was occurring uh, and, uh, and write this strong letter of, of warning and encouragement in which he tells us, uh, as Christians to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all uh, delivered uh, to us. There's a, something very, very priceless bit that's been entrusted to us as Christians, each generation as Christians, and it's called the faith, and it must be contended for in the face of, in every age, in the face of uh, two particular dangers that he was writing about in that early church and uh, people were facing in their individual lives as well. Uh, certain men, he tells us, had crept in and uh, they were very stealthily uh, advancing two dangerous heirs. Number one, they were uh, turning the grace of God into lewdness and then second, in doing so, they were denying the absolute lordship and authority of God the Father and of Jesus Christ um, in the uh, Christian life. And so 
uh, the, uh, as we mentioned last time, in facing these very, very same things, even today as Christians, we realize that we're not facing anything new. This is a dominant, prevailing pressure upon the church and individual Christians right now. But uh, this uh, theological liberalism, uh, which takes away from the Word of God, it minimizes the Word of God, explains away or denies uh, the Word of God, and any commandment that uh, they, they don't like, uh, and, and every moral demand of, of the Word of God that they uh, don't like. And so this is the great threat, I think, that we face in the church, in the Western world today, certainly in the United States. We live in the midst of a very, very secular culture, uh, a very, very uh, liberal uh, culture, and it's constant pressure to get Christians to accommodate uh, to, in the words of Jude, uh, the lewdness of, the sin of, the perversion of uh, the current age. And so we have to pay very close attention uh, to what Jude has to say to us as Christians in the middle of this kind of, of an environment and then obey what he tells us really unwaveringly. Uh, remember, too, that this very thing uh, is what God has warned us about in his word concerning the last days. And that helps me uh, gain some perspective related to what we face and in the, in the incredible pressure that we face to compromise uh, as Christians within, with the world and then even compromise individually in personal relationships in our life and, and so forth, uh, what it is that, that God has called us to do and, and again, the moral demands of Christianity. But all of this is, uh, God warned us, would mark the last days. And First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 uh, Paul wrote and he said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, uh, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Paul wasn't through when he wrote his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. He said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And so all of this kind of thing, the pressure we all feel as Christians in this regard, is just one more uh, evidence of how close the return of Jesus Christ in the rapture uh, is, is nearing, and we have to be very, very careful to know that God said this would intensify in the last days, and every day that we live, we're a little closer to the last days. It sure looks like what the Bible says is the last days to me, and we feel this particular pressure uh, as well. And so we have to be careful not to fall for it, and uh, he's warned us ahead of time that this would be the thing that would become uh, prevalent in what identifies itself as Christianity in the last days. And uh, Jude uh, knows that this kind of pressure on us as Christians to make stands, to contend earnestly for the faith, even within the body of Christ and with other Christians, that this isn't something that's easy to do. It isn't something uh, that is pleasant to do. 
And uh, so that's the reason he began his letter with the greeting there in verse 2 that he did mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He knows that this is, uh, this is not easy to uh, make a stand against. And so that warm greeting and speaking of the mercy and the peace and the love that will be required uh, in a multiplied form to do that. One of the marks of these uh, theological liberals in terms of uh, the demor moral demands of Christianity is that there is much that, uh, within Christianity that appeals to them. There's much in the teaching of the Bible that appeals to them. There's much about the teaching and the life and ministry of Jesus that appeals uh, to them. And they want to be a part of Christianity. They want to identify with Christianity, but they want to reject the moral demands, the clear commands of the Bible that are inconvenient for them. And so these uh, certain men, uh, these apostates, uh, as, as Jude refers to them as certain men, they uh, didn't go out and they still don't do it. They don't go out and start their own uh, religion. What they always do is they infiltrate the genuine church with the idea of seducing it, of reforming it. They have the idea that they're improving uh, Christianity in what they're advocating. After all, this is a new age, this is a new day, and uh, people are different today. And so, as a result, you have all kinds of mainstream uh, Protestant denominations who uh, openly advocate for homosexual marriage, for instance, or the ordination of practicing uh, homosexuals as pastors, uh, the advancement of the LGBTQ agenda. Uh, they deny the necessity of a spiritual birth for salvation. They deny the absolute authority of, of Scripture concerning our doctrine and our practice, uh, what we believe and, and the life that we live. And of course, if I feel free to disregard the clear uh, moral teachings of the Bible, then God is no longer the head uh, of uh, the church. He's no longer the ultimate authority within Christianity. I've now made myself greater than God within a church or within Christianity, and it's all uh, the very same thing that is continually promoted within our culture. It is all the worship of self, and if church or Christianity is merely the worship of self, then why bother with it at all? And then once that kind of thing starts, that we all get to determine what Christianity is based upon the commandments that we like or we don't like, where in the world does it end? And what it, where it ends then is ultimately everybody brings their opinion to the table related to this is the denial of every single demanding or inconvenient command in the Bible until it becomes this spiritual tower of Babel and ultimately it, uh, it collapses in a great ineffectual uh, heap. This is where it always has to go. And this is where this theological uh, liberalism on a denominational level or in an individual person's life uh, always uh, uh, ends. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that this kind of thing sends mixed messages to uh, the unsaved world concerning Christianity. And so instead of Christianity presenting a single voice, a unified voice to the world, 
uh, in terms of what God says and what God intends, the Christianity that God intends. What happens is the unsaved world gets mixed messages and they're left confused as to what they ought to believe. And the reason that Jude is so strong on this is because eternity is at stake in all of this. And uh, some people don't take that uh, very seriously at all, but uh, Jude takes it very, very seriously in terms of the false teacher and their disciples or the world that is listening to them and then concludes that this apostate position that they're taking or definition of Christianity is, uh, represents biblical Christianity. And again, whether it's a denomination that's doing it or it's an individual Christian that does it, it's no more, it's no more pleasant or pleasing in the eyes of God for an individual to determine, well, I'm going to make my own Christianity. Uh, I'm going to disregard the commandments that are inconvenient to me and the commandments that I don't like, and I'm going to make Christianity what I want it to be, and then I'm going to proceed to live that out before my peers and before my family members and before the world around me. It, it is, uh, it, it is a, a, as a great an affront to God in an individual life as ever it is in a denomination or, or a uh, non-denomination. And uh, because... Uh, it is, I'm claiming to represent Christianity when I am not representing Christianity. And the, the presenting to the world that there's a different Christianity than the one that the Bible teaches and that it is as good as the Christianity in the Bible or even better than the Christianity in the Bible when it isn't. Or worse yet, the unsaved world witnesses this uh, mixed signal in terms of what Christianity uh, is supposed to be and they look at it and they say well they can't even figure out who they are what they are what they believe and so why should I even bother with it why should I even take it uh, seriously or if these uh, certain men these apostates if they win and Christianity then becomes known for the practice of lewdness. It becomes known for rebellion against God's uh, authority. Then the world will look at it, and in the words of the Apostle Peter, they will hold it in uh, contempt. They will speak evil of it. Imagine if this group that is a minority at this point became the majority within Christendom. And Christianity uh, then represented sexual immorality and, and uh, sin and a rebellion against God's word and authority. And then uh, as the world would look at that and, uh, and see the sin that, a that everyone is engaged in, freely engaged in, and they would look at it and they would blaspheme it, as Peter said. Uh, they would uh, rightfully... Uh, hold it in contempt and speak evil of it. Or worse yet, when the genuine Christian then speaks to a non-Christian about being born again or how to be saved, about sin, about repentance from sin, then uh, what can happen is the person, unsafe person, will respond, well, that's what you believe. 
But I know Christians that don't believe in that at all. They're not the uh, intolerant, bigoted, narrow-minded homophobes uh, uh, like you are. And uh, they get drunk. They have sex outside of marriage. They identify as transgender and so forth and so forth. And so that's the Christianity that uh, I choose. And what happens is that those uh, Christians who are simply being faithful to the Christianity that's described in the Bible, they become the bad guys and the other people become the heroes. And that's the exact opposite of what God uh, intends it to be. And terrible, terrible damage is done by these kind of people and this kind of thing. And obviously, what these certain men or these apostates were advancing uh, has an appeal to it. Uh, No false doctrine advances or is a danger uh, to Christians or warrants a letter like Jude writes here unless there's some kind of an appeal uh, to it, to our flesh. And of course, there's some of us by personality, we'd rather uh, go along to get along than to make a stand and Uh, contend earnestly for the faith. And so in verses 5 through 7, Jude continues his warning against being seduced by uh, this false teaching, their false Christianity, uh, whether that attempt to seduce us is advocated by a church or by a book or a podcast or a friend or a relative. And he comes up against it by reminding us of three examples of judgment from the Old Testament. Very important to remember, Jude does not write this letter to these apostates. He writes it to us as Christians in order to warn us not to be seduced by what it is that they are advancing. And the point that Jude makes here essentially is this that what these men, these certain men were teaching and advocating has always led to judgment. It will always end with God's judgment. And so number one, don't be that kind of a person. Don't be a certain uh, man or woman that is advocating this kind of error. And then number two, don't come under the influence of these kind of people because you will simply follow them into the judgment that God promises will come upon them. Because if you do so, any of us, in order to gain the applause of the world, the approval uh, of the world, in order to escape the persecution of a secular uh, culture against us for being faithful uh, to the, uh, the Word of God, then we'll just simply be jumping from the frying pan into the fire. We may escape the judgment of man, but we will only in doing so through compromise then uh, find ourselves headed straight into the judgment of God. And in this, Jude is intending uh, to sober us up that this is not a small issue. And he's intending to uh, uh, shore us up where uh, any of us are getting a little wobbly on on, uh, these uh, issues as the letter is being read by them or to them. 
It's ironic, really, that the very God that these kind of people uh, endeavor to present to the world, and that is a God who will uh, only love and is incapable of ever judging anyone, Jude says, will ultimately uh, judge them. They are not only deceiving other people, but they are self-deceived in this regard. The first example that he gives there is in verse 1 or verse 5, and he talks about the children of Israel, their failure to enter into the promised land, and the warning that he's making here is the danger of responding to God's Word with unbelief. And you notice that he speaks of that uh, in the latter section of, of the verse there, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And so that was the great sin, those who did not believe uh, unbelief. The incident is recorded in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, and following their exodus out of Egypt, uh, that, and that exodus out of Egypt, that deliverance from Egypt, is a picture of redemption or salvation. The children of Israel ultimately made their way uh, to Kadesh Barnea, uh, about to enter into the promised land. God commanded them to enter into the promised land, that is into Canaan, into the land of Israel that he was giving to them. And it was a land that he described as being the land of milk and honey. And so at God's command, Moses sent 12 spies into the land, one from each of the 12 tribes of, of Israel in order to affirm uh, the truthfulness of how God had described the land uh, to them. And each of them then went in. They discovered that the land was exactly as God declared. They brought back pomegranates. They brought back grapes. They brought back figs as an evidence of the fruitfulness uh, of, uh, of the land. And two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they gave a good report of the land. They encouraged the people, let's go up and take possession of it uh, immediately. We are well able to do that. And then 12, uh, 10 of the 12 spies, they gave an evil report of the land. They declared that, yes, the land is everything physically in terms of, of what God declared uh, that it was. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. But uh, if we go in there to try and defeat these giants that are in the land, the peoples that dwell in the land, uh, now uh, we're going to be destroyed. Our children are going to be uh, slaughtered. Uh, and so uh, we have to disregard this command of God uh, to take the land. And the, the people then uh, rebelled against the command uh, of the Word of God. They chose to believe the evil report of the ten spies, and they refused to enter into the promised land. Now, you, you take, the, this is the children of Israel numbering somewhere between two and three million people at this particular uh, point in time, and the report of just ten men in that context evil report, a call to openly uh, disobey on the basis of unbelief, disobey uh, God's Word, that God uh, gives a command, but He won't give us the ability to keep that command. 
and, uh, and so it infected the entire uh, congregation. And then I think tellingly in, in light of, of Jude and his whole theme and message here, when Joshua and Caleb uh, tried to get up and stand before the great congregation, the children of Israel, and to, to get them to stop and to reconsider what they, they were doing uh, to obey God's word as opposed to rebelling against it, uh, they picked up stones now and they were going to stone Joshua and Caleb, the only two of that generation that pleased God. And so the ten became the good guys, and the two became the bad guys. It's the way the thing always uh, works. And so uh, the, uh, the false, the unbelieving, the disobedient, uh, then leading the persecution of the genuine believer. And the result was, of course, is that an entire generation from 20 years old and above of the children of Israel. They perished in the wilderness over a period of uh, 40 years of wandering in that, that wilderness, and they did so because of their unbelief. And the application uh, of this event to these certain men and, and uh, its application to us is here you have, you have rebellious unbelief. You have unbelief that is expressed in disobedience. There's an unbelief that expresses itself. It, it remains as unbelief, but it doesn't translate into a deliberate uh, rebellion against God's command. And that's what you have here. Uh, you have this uh, unbelief uh, expressed in disobedience. I think it's very important to understand uh, what Egypt and the Promised Land represent in Old Testament typology uh, concerning the New Testament and the Christian faith. Egypt represents a place of bondage. It is the picture of our uh, unsaved life, living in bondage to sin, living in bondage to the world, uh, the flesh, uh, and the devil. Israel's exodus out of Egypt, this beautiful miracle of God of delivering them, represents our redemption or our salvation. The crossing of the Red Sea is a type or a picture uh, of water baptism, and Canaan or the Promised Land uh, doesn't represent heaven. Uh, contrary to some popular belief, uh, Canaan does not even represent uh, salvation uh, at, uh, at all. Uh, there are battles in the Promised Land. There won't be any battles in heaven. What Canaan is a picture of is of the rich, full, abundant, flowing with milk and honey spiritual life that is available to us as Christians as we possess our promised land. And our promised land is the promises in this Bible. As we take each of these promises and we make them our own, not uh, encountering them with unbelief or rebellion, but meeting these promises with obedience and the commands with obedience, then we find ourselves entering into a spiritual land of milk and honey, the greatest life that a, a human being uh, can, can ever live. And it's lived, uh, it's experienced by and made ours by simply obeying God's commandments. And the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, it's a picture of the Christian life that's marked by unbelief. 
It is a failure to uh, learn the promises of God, and it is a failure to claim the promises of God and then obey those commandments that are associated uh, with those uh, promises, to a failure to believe and obey God's commandments. And a Christian life, this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, represents a Christian life that's going nowhere. It is the Christian that makes absolutely no progress in their their Christian life. They just uh, go in circles. They get saved. They get out of uh, uh, Egypt, so to speak. But they uh, then just go in circles after that until the day they die. Because of their unbelief, they live a spiritual life that's like a desert, like a wilderness in comparison to the Christian life that God has intended for us and described uh, in the Word of God. They, if they would just simply obey His commandments instead of fighting against them. And this speaks of uh, the teacher uh, or, who claims to be a Christian and influences uh, others or even the individual person who advocates either in our own heart to ourselves concerning Christianity, or we advocate it toward uh, others to uh, hold a casual view of the commandments of God, to feel free to elevate our own wisdom, our own perspective, our own feelings, and our own carnality above the commandments of God in our spiritual decision-making when we're confronted with uh, something that requires the denial of self in order to obey a commandment of God. And that if obedience to God's commandment involves hardship, if it involves uh, facing giants, conquering giants, as happened with the children of Israel uh, as, as they would go into the land, uh, giants of lust or giants of addiction, giants of the flesh, that you can feel free to just ignore uh, going to war or going to battle against those things that have a place of dominance in a part of our lives uh, that they shouldn't have and that God wants to have driven out of our lives through the Word of God by the power uh, of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and then as they would advocate to just run headlong into whatever lewdness the culture is advancing at the moment and you can do so without any guilt or any conviction of wrongdoing. And how many of them, if the truth were made known, look at the Christian life as it's described there in the Bible in the same way that the children of Israel looked at the giants in the land. And they respond to the Christian life that's recorded here and described in the scriptures. And uh, and they conclude as they they read about this Christian life, they conclude in unbelief, we can't live a life of holiness. We can't live a life uh, that says no to our sexual appetites or to our carnal desire for lewdness. Uh, Despite what God tells us, despite what He commands in His Word, He's asking us to accomplish an impossibility, even with the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so, I'm going to do this on my own terms. And how often you can talk to someone who's in the camp of uh, the certain men, 
And here you are uh, as a Christian who takes all of this seriously. And you're dealing with some addiction or some bondage to sin or whatever it is that God has put his finger on in your life. And now he wants uh, that area to be defeated and for his lordship to reign in that area. And they will come in and they will try to minimize the necessity uh, of that. That this isn't something that's important to uh, endeavor to do. And just, uh, you know, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. And God is a God of love. And so you don't have to drive uh, those giants out. Leave it in your life and and then uh, and define Christianity as you you, uh, you decide to. And all of it is a denial of the lordship of Jesus in my life. And always it ends in in disaster. His second example that he gives us here in verse six is the angels who didn't keep their first estate. I like it better in the old King James, and that, that's how it, it's put. The angels who didn't keep their first estate. And so here you have the danger, not merely of unbelief, but open rebellion against God's commandments. And so the angels uh, referred to here were guilty of a very open rebellion against the authority uh, of God and, and God's authority in the universe and in their own lives. And so, uh, likewise, these certain men were teaching that Christians were free to openly and freely rebel against God's commandments and uh, thus his authority. And so Jude warned them, he warns us of the danger of that kind of rebellion, the danger of that kind of apostasy by reminding us of the angels who did not keep their proper domain or did not keep their first estate. And this refers to all of the angels that followed Satan in his rebellion uh, against, uh, against God and against God's authority. It's described in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. And in doing so, Satan left his first estate, but the, these uh, angels also left their first estate as well. Their first estate being God's intention for their lives, God in, God's intention and purpose uh, for them. They left that. They were the, dissatisfied uh, with that because it, it required being under God's uh, authority. And so they left that place of submission to God that God had called them to. And there's an indication in the scripture that as many as a third of the angelic realm followed the devil in this rebellion and they became what is known as the demonic realm today, which is made up of the devil and made up of these uh, fallen angels. Now, this verse is very complicated concerning uh, angels and, uh, and I'm not going to get into all the complications of it, but, uh, but it, it is clear uh, in the Bible that there are two groups of fallen angels in existence today. So you have one group of, of demons who are very, very actively at work in the world today. It's, it's the spiritual warfare that we're up against as Christians uh, in, in the world. And so they operate today in the universe under the leadership uh, of the devil. And then there's another group that's described here is chained. They're reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment 
of the great day. And so there is uh, some uh, number of these angels, and uh, they are kept in chains as a, uh, it, it, because uh, uh, for some reason uh, that, that uh, God is uh, aware of. They're not even in play in the spiritual warfare that we're involved in. Evidently, uh, they're so dangerous and so destructive that uh, they're kept chained and, and out of a play in, in spiritual warfare. There are some who believe that this particular group of angels are those who tried to intermingle uh, with the human race, as it was described in Genesis chapter 6. And, uh, but no one can really be dogmatic related to that. And the good thing is we don't have to figure out all of these compartments related to angels or demons, really, uh, in order to understand the point that Jude is making. And so uh, what we do know is that ultimately all fallen angels, including the devil himself, will be cast into Gehenna, into the uh, lake of fire, eternal lake of fire, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so the application, what Jude is talking about here, is he makes these angels a, 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 an illustration and a point for us, is that even angelic apostates are doomed. And so these uh, false teachers had crept into the churches. They were attempting to make the people discontented with what God had called them to be as Christians, discontented with their first estate, discontented with the Bible, the, the Christianity that's described in the Bible in order to get them to rebel against God concerning his definitions of the Christian life, his definitions of, of holiness, and then uh, to then follow uh, them in, in their own ideas of of what uh, things should be like to follow the false teachers. And of course, the pride of uh, these kind of people is stu stunning. Uh, to, for me to come to the Bible as a person who's uh, been saved, I can never get myself out of Egypt any more than the children of Israel could get themselves out of Egypt. I could no more deliver myself from the bondage to my flesh, to sin, to the world, uh, to the devil. I have no possibility of doing that. And then God does this miracle within our lives. And he brings us out into this salvation experience. And then somehow now at this point, I feel like I'm smarter than God and free now to redefine Christianity. That is an arrogance and a pride that is on the level of the arrogance and the pride and the rebellion against authority that marked Satan in his original rebellion and the angelic realm that followed him uh, in that rebellion. And Jude is declaring to us, none of this is new. And uh, this pride-based rebellion against the Word of God, it's as old as Satan's rebellion. And so he tells us, hold on to your first estate. You notice that these false teachers, these certain men, they come to you after you're saved. Why didn't they show up when you weren't saved? Why didn't they have a message for you when you were in the bondage of sin and the bondage of flesh? 
Why do they, they come, these Johnny-come-latelys, and now after God's done all of the heavy lifting, they want to come in on the scene? He says, don't leave your first uh, estate. You hold on to the salvation and the Christian life that produces a changed life, and don't forsake it in order to accommodate the lewdness of the age or the lewdness of uh, of our present world and then deny Jesus' lordship in your lives uh, as a result. And then his third example, he talks about the destruction of Sodom uh, and Gomorrah, the danger of abandoning, abandoning a biblical Christianity in order to practice or to accommodate uh, lewdness in the words of, of uh, Jude, or to accommodate sexual immorality. And so the false teachers were teaching that it didn't matter to God what kind of sinful life a person uh, lived. There would be no repercussions uh, for it at all because God's grace would cover all of it. And so Jude reminded them, he reminds us of the danger of living an immoral life as represented and illustrated by God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so sexual immorality, uh, and then specifically homosexuality, was rampant in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding uh, cities. You remember in Genesis chapter 19, two angels came into the city of Sodom and they were going to spend the night out in the open square. And, uh, and Lot came and he saw them and he realized the immediate danger uh, that they would be uh, in. They didn't know, he didn't know they were angels at that point, uh, being left out in the middle of the night in a city like Sodom. And so he invited them to come into his house and allow him to provide food and shelter uh, with them for the, the, the night. They declined. He insisted that they come uh, uh, in, knowing the immorality of the city. So they did, and then after a meal, before they lay down to sleep, uh, the homosexual men of the city surrounded Lot's house, demanded that he uh, give the angels to them that they might know them carnally, that they might have sexual relationships with these uh, angels who were in a male form. Lot refused uh, them their, what they demanded of, uh, of his guests, and uh, they attempted to take these angels sexually by force, uh, they were blinded by the angels, and the lust of these men were so great, uh, you would think that if you were supernaturally blinded, uh, your only thought would be now to try and feel your way back home. Uh, but it, it merely emboldens them to find the door and try to beat down the door and uh, satisfy uh, their lusts. And the following morning, uh, following the removal of Lot and his wife and his daughters, God destroyed the cities with uh, fire and brimstone. And of course, in raising the subject of uh, practicing homosexuality, Jude has ventured, of course, into a very contemporary issue that is not a contemporary issue at all. It is, uh, it, it is always going on in human history, and, and it is not to be compromised on. The application related to all of this is that the false teachers were teaching that if your passions tell you to do something and God's Word tells you to do something different, then it's all right 
to obey your sinful desires, even when those desires are lewdness, to use Jude's term, and Jude uh, reminds uh, them, and, and he tells us not to believe these kind of false teachers or influencers when they declare that God really doesn't care uh, if we live a immoral, sexually immoral life. And Jude reminded them, and he reminds us, that holiness and purity and obedience to God's Word uh, is important to God, and it's important to God in every age. However dominant or prevailing uh, the sins and the lewdness of the world may become within a culture. And so Sodom and Gomorrah uh, believed otherwise, believed that they could uh, be uh, what they were, they could obey the appetites of of their flesh, that holiness and purity uh, didn't matter, and they were destroyed. And a fiery judgment awaits not only these certain men, Jude says, but also those who follow in their encouragement to live immoral lives. And so even in the Old Testament, God continually warned against following religious leaders, uh, following even priests who encouraged the practice of sin among God's people, that it always ends badly for everyone. And the followers, he held the priests responsible but he also held the people responsible for following the false teachers because everyone knows from the Word of God, everyone knows from our own consciences that this kind of thing is wrong. And the, and the great fact of the matter is, is we tend to believe what we want to believe. And so what we believe uh, we are personally responsible for, no matter who is endeavoring uh, to influence us. The book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 16, for the leaders of this people, Isaiah wrote, cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Jeremiah, chapter 5, verse 30, an astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so, but what will you do in the end? And the end is always coming. And the end is always judgment. And we tend to view these kind of things on the basis of whatever culture or nation that we live in, and we merely see the progression, the advancement of sexual immorality or lewdness. And we lose sight of the fact that there is an end to all of this, and the end of it is with God's uh, judgment. Even Jesus uh, spoke uh, of this, in regard to the uh, Pharisees, as he spoke to the disciples who were teaching, doing this very thing that these certain men were doing. And that is they were teaching uh, God's people in the name of God, 
teaching them that when you come up against a commandment that is hard for you to obey, that is a commandment that is inconvenient for you to obey, they supplied the people with alternative means in order to circumvent the moral demands of the Word of God. And one of the examples that Jesus gave was the example of Corbin. The uh, Ten Commandments said, Honor your father and your mother. They were to take care of their father and their mother, respect them, even into old age. And so people didn't want to do that. And so they said, uh, listen, you can protect all of your money and your resources that you have and, <coughs> and, and dedicate all of it to the Lord, but hold on to it. And so when your parents have a need and you could readily take care of it out of your money, you can say to them, no, I can't give you any money or care for you because all of my money has been dedicated already to God. And it's the same thing that was going on there. And Jesus answered and he said, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, then both will fall into a ditch. And so Jude's warning to us as Christians not to follow or come under the influence of leaders or even ordinary people in our lives who claim to be Christians, but they advocate for the accommodation of lewdness or sin uh, by Christians and, and, and do so in direct violation of the Lordship of Jesus in our lives because it has always ultimately led to God's judgment and it will always lead to God's judgment. Whether, as we have seen this morning, in advocating rebellious unbelief against God's commandment, as was the case with the children of Israel, or advocating open rebellion against God's authority, as was the case with uh, the angels that didn't keep their first estate, or in advocating the abandonment of biblical holiness in order to practice sexual immorality, as was the case with Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a good warning. And it's a needed warning. And so to ask ourselves this morning again, he did not write this to the false teachers. He wrote this letter to us as Christians to be wary of coming under this influence. And this influence is not only dominant in the world, it is becoming increasingly more dominant within what calls itself Christianity in the United States of America. So in the privacy of our own heart this morning, once again, to just ask uh, ourselves, are we being influenced in the wrong direction concerning these issues? Whether it's in school, or whether it's in entertainment, or whether it's a book, or magazines, or online, or social media, or whatever it might be. And Jude says, all of this is nothing new. And to turn from those voices, they're headed for judgment, and commit to only listen to the voice of God and then obey His commandments in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the stand that needs to be taken in order to remain safe as a Christian in the middle of what Jude is describing 
And what Jude is describing is the culture and the society that you and I live in all day, every day. And the importance of making that right decision concerning these redefinitions of Christianity and these temptations. And I know full well that if I'm going to preach verses 5, 6, and 7 in the United States of America as a pastor, then not everybody is going to like that. Because here we are in the luxury of being in the middle of a progression. But that progression, and so everybody can have an opinion in the middle of the progression. But it ends in judgment. It ends in judgment. As surely, as, and it will be as true, as surely as every other promise in God's Word is true. And so everyone will have their opinion. The world, Christians, everyone will make their own decision. Jude knows that. All he can do is supply us with the strongest warnings in order to shore up wobbly knees and to uh, anchor us and to help us to see things clearly. But then we must make that decision for ourselves. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we pray for our own hearts as you see them, everything open and naked before you, with whom we have to do. And we pray that the strength of what Jude has said by your Holy Spirit that wherever it is, whatever impact these three verses are intended to have in our lives, wherever any of us might be getting shaky, any of us might be coming under the spell of this kind of false teaching and indoctrination that you would use today to just reestablish the fact of your lordship in each and every one of our lives and a full commitment to obey your commandments and to believe your word, Lord, knowing that you're the only one that knows what you're talking about in this world and knowing that this is the only path that ends in the glory of heaven and the only Christianity that ends there. And so we pray that you would continue your work of your spirit through this passage in each of our lives throughout today and beyond as is needed. With Jude, Lord, we pray, those of us for whom these things are settled issues in our, our heart, we pray, Lord, for anyone that is wobbling here today in their life and that you would reach in and grab them and save them from the deception they're about to fall prey to and its end. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.